beginning a new uh, series, a, a short series leading up to Easter, and it's uh, looking at the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. Now, very, a very brief introduction to the book of Isaiah. So, it's a long book, 66 chapters, but the book can be split up into three main sections, and each section applies to a particular time period. And each section gives a certain portrait of the Messiah that's promised. So the first section, chapters 1 to 39, and they coincide with Isaiah's own lifetime, around 740 to 681 BC. And these chapters are filled with uh, warnings of the coming invasion from the Assyrians, who then did come and invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. And then after them, the Babylonians who conquered the Assyrians in 720 BC. And then the southern kingdom of Judah fell to the Babylonians in 605 BC, about 20 years after Babylon rose to power. So scattered throughout these Uh, chapters, these 39 chapters, are not only the warnings but also promises of salvation that will come through a descendant of David. You probably know the famous passage that's often quoted at Christmas time, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his governments and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So in this part of Isaiah, the Messiah is the promised son of David. The third section, chapters 56 to 66, they address those who had returned from exile to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city. They returned in 538 BC, 70 years after the king of Babylon ransacked Jerusalem. But it acknowledges that the return of the exiles was only partial. So it looks forward to a time when not only all of the Israelites who had been scattered amongst the nations will be regathered, but also all the nations themselves will be gathered in. So from Isaiah 56, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Now you may recognise those 
words there at the, the end. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Those words were quoted by Jesus when he cleared the temple of the traders and the money changers. Now it's also from this part of Isaiah that we heard last week when Jesus went into the synagogue in Nazareth, read the scripture, sat down and then made it very clear that he is the one who says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So in this closing section of Isaiah, the Messiah is this conquering liberator, the liberator of captives. Much like the image in the book of Revelation of Jesus when he comes as the rider on a white horse coming to uh, set free and to marry his bride. But our focus for this short series is this middle section of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 55. And here the portrait of the Messiah is of a servant and specifically a servant who saves his people by entering into their suffering and he saves them by his suffering. Now this servant is introduced in our reading this morning but before we look at this portrait that Isaiah begins to paint of this servant, let's see some of the highlights in the beginning of this section of Isaiah that that lead up to it so we understand the context. Now these chapters were written to be read by those who were in exile. They were waiting, waiting to see if the Lord would deliver them, if they would return. And Isaiah 40 begins with an announcement that their time in exile will come to an end. But only once it's fulfilled the Lord's purpose. Remember we saw last week the 70 years of exile would make up for their 490 years of their neglect of the Sabbath. So Isaiah 40 verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now again, do you recognise the last line there? They're the words of John the Baptist as he prepared the way for Jesus to come. Now in Isaiah's context, this highway that he speaks of is a picture of a, 
of a, a straight and level road stretching from Babylon back to Israel. And the picture is of the Lord himself going to Babylon, gathering the exiles and then bringing them all home with shouts of joy, like a second exodus. Then comes the image of a shepherd keeping his sheep safe from the wolves. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. See, in Babylon, the people were like sheep without a shepherd. Not only had their own leaders who were supposed to be shepherds failed them, but they were under the power of other leaders, foreigners. And so it wasn't easy for them to receive these promises. So he goes on and he reassures them. He says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. He's saying, wait for me. It's going to be a while. It's going to be a whole generation that you're in exile but my deliverance will come. And he then hints at the means of their eventual deliverance. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Now this is a reference to Cyrus, the king of Persia. The eastern kingdom, if you look on the map, Persia, modern day Iran, is east of Israel. Cyrus, the king of Persia, came in and he overthrew the Babylonians. And he is the one who then allowed the Jews to return from Jerusalem in 538. So, with this reassurance that the Lord is in control, that he's faithfully working out his plan for his people, he reassures them again. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, 
You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, who's the Lord's servant in this passage? This is the first time in the book of Isaiah that God uses this term, my servant. Well, it's the nation, isn't it? Remember last week we saw the reason why servants and slaves in Israel were to be treated with care and respect? God said in Leviticus 25, For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So this first time that is that Isaiah, the Lord through Isaiah mentions my servants, he's speaking of the nation of Israel. See, they weren't to be just merely a collection of individual servants, but collectively as a whole people, they were to be the Lord's servant through which he will fulfil his purpose for the whole world. All that the Lord says of his servant in our reading this morning was supposed to be true of Israel. They were meant to be a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. And Jesus affirmed that when he said, you, and he was talking to Jews, to Israel, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Salt represents the covenant. Every offering in the tabernacle was to be sprinkled with salt and that salt was called the salt of the covenant with your God. So to be the salt of the earth is to be heralds of the covenant, to be those who go out and extend that invitation to come in and be part of the Lord's covenant community. Israel was meant to be salt of the earth and the light of the world, but they failed in this mandate. Instead, what did they do? They, they brought reproach upon the Lord's name among the nations. Instead of being a showcase of God's goodness, they became a showcase of his wrath. So, that which Israel have failed to do, the Lord will step in and do himself on their behalf in the person of the servant. So, while the first mention of the servant here in Isaiah refers to the nation, as the songs progress through Isaiah, it becomes very clear that the servant is actually one person whom we know is Jesus. So let's look at the portrait that's painted of this servant. Notice that the primary concern of this servant is justice. It's mentioned there three times. Verse 1, he will bring forth justice to the nations. 
Verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. And then verse 4, till he has established justice in the earth. Now this justice, firstly, it is a judgment of God upon the nations for all of their raging against the Lord. But secondly, it's a justice that, as we see, will become established in the coastlands. And coastlands is a word that talks about the distant lands, all the countries up around the Mediterranean and uh, in the distant islands. This justice will become established so that the coastlands wait for his law. That's a, that's a phrase of hope. They will find hope as they trust and obey the Lord. So ultimately the servant will bring justice that will be judgment, but it won't be a judgment leading to destruction, but judgment leading to salvation. Now there are three aspects then of the manner in which this servant will bring about this justice. Firstly, the sign that he is the Lord's chosen servant, that he is the one in whom the Lord delights, that he's qualified to bring about justice, is that he is anointed by the Holy Spirit. I have put my spirit upon him. Now this should immediately make us think of Jesus' baptism. The Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove and the Father audibly spoke from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Another way of saying, in whom my soul delights. The number one qualification for a ruler was that they were to be filled with the Spirit. Remember when Samuel was sent to anoint a king in the place of Saul and he was told, don't look at the outward appearance. And so David, the most unlikely candidate, humanly speaking, was selected. And we're told that Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. The oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Years later, David was caught in his sins of adultery and murder. And he prayed in Psalm 51, Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. That wasn't because he was afraid of losing his salvation He was afraid of losing his anointing to continue in his role as king. So to be anointed by the Spirit is to be set apart, to be commissioned, empowered to do the Lord's work because we cannot do it in our own strength. It's only as we're filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus' words to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you 
And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The gift of the Spirit at Pentecost wasn't a gift that brought about salvation. He'd already done that. He'd already enabled the disciples to believe in Jesus after the resurrection. This gift was an anointing of the Spirit that empowered them, that commissioned them and the church after them to fulfil the mission of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And everything Jesus did, he did as one empowered, anointed by the Spirit. That's what Christ means, literally, the anointed one. He didn't call on his divine prerogative as the Son of God, the eternal Son. He did all things as the anointed, Spirit-empowered Son of Man. So all of his miracles were not to say, I'm God, they were to say, I'm the Christ, I am the anointed one, I'm the one who says the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and he's called me to do these things. Even his offering of himself at the cross was by the power of the Spirit. It was only because he was the spirit-filled, anointed Messiah that he was able to bear the sin of the world and that his offering was sufficient to take away all of our sin. So the servants will be anointed by the Spirit. Secondly, the servant brings about justice not through violence or force but through gentleness and humility, verses 2 and 3. He won't be a zealot, he won't be a rabble-rouser. He's not starting a revolution or gathering an army. Matthew tells us, in the days... um, That's not the verse. I'll leave it there for the moment. Matthew tells us, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, against Jesus how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfil what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then Matthew quotes this passage. Jesus didn't want his fame to spread so that people would try to force him to be an earthly king, to to lead an army to throw out the Romans. He'd come to declare the kingdom of God, but as the Son of Man, he came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. As he stood trial, he refused to speak to defend himself. Even when he was given the opportunity, they brought false witnesses who accused him of falsehood and he remained silent. This humility flows into showing mercy and compassion to those who are bruised, those who are faint from the trials of the world, 
and from their own sin and sinfulness. He has compassion on the weak. He has compassion on the frail because he's the high priest, the great high priest who's entered into the weakness and the frailty of human beings. These people, the bruised reeds, the faintly burning wicks, these are the people he spoke of in the Beatitudes. The poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And he says these people are to know that they're blessed, not because their weak state has any moral status or merit in itself, but because the kingdom of God has arrived in him. And in him they'll be comforted in their mourning, they'll be satisfied in their hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Jesus said, all who labour and are heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the, the gentleness, the humility, the care, the compassion of this servant. Now there is a reference to Jesus raising his voice, but it's raising it in a very different way. And I think that verse was back here somewhere. Where is it? There. In the days of his flesh, this is in Hebrews. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. To him he was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Loud cries, but they're not loud cries of a demonstration of worldly strength or power, but they're a demonstration of faith, faith in his father. And so this servant, we're told, will bring about justice through his faithfulness. He will faithfully bring forth justice. It was because of his absolute trust and obedience to the Father, his completing of the mission even to the point of going to the death on the cross, that his sacrifice was acceptable and pleasing to the Father. To gain worldly authority requires you to sacrifice others in your quest for power, to trample on the weak. Jesus has all authority over all kings and over all powers because of his humble service, because of his self-sacrifice on behalf of the bruised reeds and the faintly burning wicks. Thirdly, he'll bring justice through being resolute. Now this verse, sat sat next next to verse 3, resonates with what we've seen about the role of the great high priest. That he identifies with people in their weakness, the faintly burning wicks and the 
bruised reeds. But at the same time, he doesn't succumb to that weakness to the point of sinning by giving up on his mission. So verse 4 here uses the same words as verse 3. He talks about growing faint like the faintly burning wick. And that word therefore discouraged is actually the same word as bruised. Have you ever read Hebrews 12.2 and wondered about it? We're called to be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What joy was there in experiencing the cross and its shame? Well, the answer is none. There's no joy in being crucified. But Jesus' joy wasn't like ours. It wasn't fickle. It wasn't shifting with his circumstances. Because his joy was not in his circumstances, his joy was in his Father and doing his Father's will. And so he knew complete joy even in the midst of his horrific suffering. And it was a joy that enabled him to say at the very end, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke tells us that there was a time that came in Jesus' ministry when he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And we're told in Mark that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise. So the disciples, uh, they're struggling to keep up with Jesus. Jesus is walking resolutely down the road towards Jerusalem. They're amazed because as he'd already told them, And he tells them again, in Jerusalem he's going to face mocking, torture and death as well as resurrection. Although that aspect of it will be very easily and quickly forgotten by them until Easter Sunday morning. So his disciples are amazed and the crowds that are following who have less insight into his mission than the disciples, they're simply afraid because they haven't yet seen that this is the foreordained plan of the Father and Jesus is wholly committed to fulfilling this plan. Now as we've seen in Isaiah, this plan includes not just the cross and the resurrection but the justice of God going out to the ends of the earth so that the coastlands and islands will find hope. Just as Jesus was resolute and he set his face to go to the suffering of the cross on behalf of sinners, 
He remains resolute. He continues to carry out the Father's plan. He continues to pour out the Spirit on his people and empower us to proclaim the Gospel. Because the Gospel is the ultimate announcement of God's justice. It declares that the risen Jesus is Lord and Judge of the whole earth. He's the judge of the living and the dead. And all people are now called to come to him in repentance and faith and to receive the mercy that he won at the cross. And it's at the cross where God shows himself unequivocally to be just. It's there that he judges sin in its totality. And at the same time, he justifies the sinner who has faith in Jesus. Jesus came as the servant. In a sense, he was Israel, all rolled up into one person. He is the, the one true Israelite, the only one who perfectly fulfilled Israelite, Israel's mandate to be salt of the earth, light of the world, a covenant for the people and for the nations. But he took on this role not to take it away from Israel, but to restore it, to renew it. By his death and his resurrection and by pouring out the Holy Spirit, he's now reformed God's people. No longer are they an ethnic national group, defined by circumcision, they are the church, made up of people from all nations who are defined by faith in Jesus. The church hasn't replaced Israel. The church is the continuation of the true Israel. Those who from the very beginning walked in the same faith as Abraham who trusted in the promises of God. So the church has now been reissued this mandate, this mandate to be the Lord's servant, to be on about the work of the kingdom in the proclamation of the gospel and in humble service. So see how these images of salt and light are now applied to us in... uh, Colossians 4, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And then Philippians 2, do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights. In the world. Notice how these two verses relate both to how we speak and how our speech flows into our actions, and how both are oriented not towards ourselves but to those in the world around us. That's what it looks like to be united with Christ, the servant to be formed into the image of this servant, to be brought to maturity 
in Christ, the servant. We hold forth the message of God's perfect justice and mercy in the gospel and we give our lives to serve God through serving one another. Let's pray.